What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, I have a pocket full of quarters and I'm headed to the arcade. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Volkelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And people... Yeah. It is just pretty much acknowledged by everyone that video games are brain suck, right? Yeah, they just, they kill brain cells. They yeah. make you stupid. They, it's, you might as well just stick a screwdriver in your ear. Huh. I mean, I, I just quoted the song Pac-Man Fever, which that alone proves that my intelligence has suffered as a result of playing video games, right? Uh, after I am done playing a video game... I can't even remember my own name. Right. I I have gotten to the point where I will try and make a sandwich and I put the meat on the outside of it. Yeah. I mean, sometimes when I'm playing Halo, I just randomly yell at people outside of the game for absolutely no reason in really immature ways. Yeah. The worst is when you're yelling at all the 10 or 12 year olds that are in your apartment complex. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just I just I just I just walk them. outside and I'm like, 
You goat hugger. Yeah. Shut up. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Obviously, we're being a little uh, a little silly, mostly because we, we've already gotten punchy today. Well, we are echoing some sentiments that probably are fairly widespread in the society that uh, say that, you know, video games are just stupid. I mean, you might as well be watching Jersey Shore. You, okay, gotcha. you might as well be just just completely. I mean, it's mindless. It it numbs your brain. At worst, it might even make you violent. Right. Yeah. Uh, it teaches you to be violent. Yeah. Yeah. Because obviously, but, but correlation it, and causation are the same thing. Right? At best, it just dulls your mind and makes you stupid. Well, here's the thing: is uh, there is there any scientific basis for all this naysaying? The, the scientific basis seems to suggest a completely opposite. Uh, conclusion, not that video games are in fact dulling the senses and making us bad at, at being able to think or make decisions, but in fact that it can help boost those abilities. So that's what we wanted to concentrate on today was can we use video games to improve our cognitive functions? Can we actually use them not just to improve basic functions, but to actually learn new stuff? Right. So there's a twofold approach here. Can we get smarter via video games and can we learn better via video games? And uh, and spoiler alert, I think the answer to both of those questions is yes. But, uh, of course, just saying that means nothing. We need to back that up because, uh, yeah. because science. Because science. Right. Uh, so what kind of research do we have about this? How about, how about the actual cognitive ability thing? Sure. So, you know, there have been a lot of studies, actually, a lot yeah. of studies that have looked at video games and cognitive function in different, in different specific, uh, uh, perspectives, right? Not just co overall cognitive function, but sometimes very specific types of cognitive function. Yeah. And I think that's a good method to go about in, in science. So it's not just like you play some Mario and then you take an IQ test. Right. They're testing usually how specific cognitive tasks can be changed via video game play. Yeah. So there was a study that was published in the Public Library of Science. It was partly funded by the Air Force, which obviously has a stake in this. Yeah. yeah they want they want to they want to make sure that they have uh, people who are really good at handling lots of things going on at once. So in this case, they were looking at the ability for people to manage. Uh, well, it's really to see mental flexibility, to be able to cognitive manage, flexibility, right? All different kinds of tasks that are happening and being able to manage multiple ones all, all at the same time. And, and at a fast pace. Yeah. So in this case, they are looking at things like real-time strategy games where you have to manage all the resources that you have while still trying to uh, achieve certain goals, whatever the goal of that particular game happens mm -hmm. to be. And or prevent other people from achieving their goals. Right. So that means that you have to handle lots of different things all at once. And as it turns out, uh, it you know that sort of skill perhaps could translate to real-life skill. That's what they were really interested in seeing. Yeah, they found that games that, uh, quote, emphasized maintenance and rapid switching between multiple information and action sources were the ones that led to the, the biggest increase in cognitive flexibility. Right. So, this... so sort of like having to flip back and forth between lots of different kinds of jobs and pieces of information. Right. Really You're having, having to manage all this at once means that you actually train yourself in how to do that in general, not just in a video game. Exactly. So you could have someone who is really adept at this game, try and, and adapt those skills to a new task. And it was something that was transferable. It's not necessarily 
means that it doesn't necessarily mean that someone who's really good at a real time strategy game is automatically going to be awesome at this brand new task you give them, but that they can adapt <laughs> much, much more quickly and be able to handle that kind of thing faster than someone who's just uh, doing that without the benefit of of uh, increasing those skills. I can see the Air Force's plan. Oh, Mr. Gamer here, we're going to put you in the cockpit of a stealth bomber. Right. You were, you were no. so good at Warcraft 2 that now <laughs> we're going to make you in charge of this entire group of people. Yeah, yeah. no, that's not quite the way it works. Okay, but also th- there's a lot more than this, right? Studies have shown that uh, that video games can help speed decision-making, right? Sure. Like yeah. accurate decision-making. Right. That's the University of Rochester study you're talking about. It was done with the Department of Brain and Cognitive Sciences. Uh, a very uh, a very fun department, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, the DBCS. Yeah. So anyway, uh, the, <laughs> this particular study was looking at how video games could help uh, make a person's reaction time shorter and shorter, that they're able to react faster to changing situations and make quick decisions and then also see, are those decisions still good decisions or are they trigger happy? Right. You're not just getting hasty. Right. The idea being that uh, that you are not reacting without having all the information that was the prevailing kind of hypothesis was that people who were really good at these games it wasn't necessarily that they were making good decisions they were making decisions and they were doing it faster than than normal people but perhaps they were doing so without all the pertinent information they would need to make a good decision this study ended up looking at a lot of different things and it suggested that perhaps that's not true. It was actually a meta-analysis, meaning yeah. that it looked at uh, numerous other studies and drew conclusions based upon the outcomes of those other studies. And based on those other studies, it looked like the trend was that video game players, or VGPs, as they called them, ah. uh, seemed to have a, a better performance at making fast, accurate decisions than non-video game players, or NVGPs. So, it, and they said it bore out when they looked at study after study. Like they, they, they plotted all the different results and showed that according to that meta analysis, this seems to be a thing that playing these sort of games hones those skills and in fact allows you to make these decisions faster and with no loss in accuracy. Uh, skills like, like pattern recognition, for example. That's a big one. And of course, you know, in the, in the case of any sort of military operation, a fast decision could mean the difference between life and death. Uh, but you obviously still want to have that accuracy there yeah. because that could also mean the difference between life and death. Okay. So these last couple of things we talked about were kind of these minutely focused different aspects of cognition. Sure. Fast decision making based on visual cues and cognitive flexibility. Is there anything sort of more uh, broader and more abstractly measured that video games could affect? Like, how about creativity? There you go. That's pretty abstract, right? So, creativity. This is an interesting study, a Michigan State University study that looked at creativity and the relationship between that and activities like playing video games, using a computer, using the internet, and cell phone use. And so the study looked at 491 12-year-olds across all demographics. I think there were something like 53% of them were were girls. Uh, and then they had, you know, demographics pulled from different uh, social statuses, different uh, ethnic backgrounds, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And they said that across all demographics, the that playing video games was a great predictor for creativity, that the kids who enjoyed playing video games more also were the ones who were more creative. Uh, now, th- I'm really cautious about citing the study for more than that, because mm-hmm. this could just be a correlation, not a causal relationship. Right. It may not be that 
if you play more video games, you become more creative, but rather that creative people are drawn, drawn to video games. Right. This is the same sort of thing we have to be cautious about with all those stories about video games and violence. It's not necessarily true that video games promote actual violent behavior. It may be people who are uh, who tend toward violent behavior are also drawn to video games. You can't say that one causes the other. Correlation and causation are two different things. However, uh, it does bear more study. The idea of are there video games that can promote the sort of creative thinking that could perhaps uh, inspire students who are you know already interested in exploring creativity? There are certain games we can talk about and some that we will talk about that already do this to some extent. Like mm-hmm. Minecraft is a good one, right? Minecraft oh, yeah. is one where people have expressed creativity through numerous ways. Oh, sure, uh, sure, because you're telling the story. There isn't already a story in the game. You have to yeah. make one up for yourself. Yeah, and, you, and you can build whatever you like. It's digital Legos. Yeah, yeah you can, you sandbox. Can, you can make it a creative experience where there's no other gameplay element other than the fact that you are building stuff out of you know digital materials. Then there's also things like the game uh, Trials, Trials is a game where it's a, a motorcycle game. You're riding a motorcycle through an obstacle course, and your your goal is to complete the course as quickly as possible with as few faults as possible. That's uh, generally the way the game works. And, you know, people get bragging rights. So oh, I, I beat that level in X amount of time with zero faults. That That's, you know, something that gets bragged about in the gaming world. But there's also a level design element with many of those trials games. And people have built games that are not even remotely related to, to motorcycles using the, the game building uh, elements in this game where I, I've seen a pinball game. <laughs> recreated where there actually was a little motorcyclist inside a solid like an opaque ball so you don't see him but they they just used all the the, the physics of the game yeah, yeah the physics and the and the uh the the different pieces that the developers put into the game and reimagined it in some way so it shows that by creating this outlet for creativity people seize on it and they they make some pretty amazing stuff so i think uh, even if there isn't a direct causal relationship between creativity and video game playing this uh, uh this trend of of catering to creativity is really a positive one uh sure okay but but so far we've been talking about some of these these deep interesting sandbox games that let you do whatever you want what about something really simple like super mario brothers oh i'm glad you asked <laughs> in 2013 there was a study conducted and Forgive me, folks, at the Max Planck Institute for Human Development and Charité Université Medicine St. Hedwig Krankenhaus, which <laughs> examined how video games appear to augment brain function in certain regions of the brain, including the regions responsible for spatial orientation, memory formation, and strategic planning. So what the, the study particularly did was it had a group of adults, so these are not kids, these are adults, who would play Super Mario 64 for 30 minutes every day for two months. I will I will make sure to reinforce the fact this was a 2013 study. <laughs> so they and, got Nintendo 64. Yeah, <laughs> that, apparently Nintendo 64 was big in Germany in 2013. So they actually measured brain volume. They used MRI scans. So this is kind of a, over the course of the study, they would have the, the various participants go and elect to be in an MRI machine and they would have an MRI performed, a scan performed, and then they would look at the results over the course of the study. And they found that by the end of the study, 
that people started to uh, get increases in their gray matter. Their brains got bigger. Wow. Yeah. In these specific regions, particularly. And that uh, this seems to show that the activity of the video games was one that promoted this this growth in gray matter because it was it was engaging those parts of the brains of the people who were uh, participating. Um, I would love to read more about this study to see their control group, to see exactly what their methodology was to make sure that they were uh, trying to um, to eliminate any other possible factors that could have also resulted in an increase in gray matter and maybe see if there are any other studies that have uh, attempted to replicate these results. But it is really interesting, this idea that perhaps because you're exercising parts of your brain that you might not otherwise engage, depending upon what your day-to-day activities are, could in fact make you, at least on some level, smarter, or at least make your brain function more effectively. In those, more better. Yeah, more better. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. That's really cool. But everything we've talked about so far has sort of been uh, aimed at the aptitude of the brain, if that makes any sense. It's more kind of along the lines of your IQ and what your brain can naturally do at its base level. But I'm interested in talking about video games in the context of education and learning so uh, not not right. just not just increasing our our abilities but yeah. actually imparting knowledge oh, but right. like we were talking about at the top of the show what's that other half about yeah can can they make us learn more better i well, think they can make us learn more better yeah there's certainly lots of games out there that have catered to this and it's not a new phenomenon at all i mean i remember when i was going to to school uh, when i was in elementary school and and personal computers were brand new um, the Apple II was considered to be an amazing device that was going to change our future. And in many ways, it did just that. But there were games that were coming out that were for all sorts of, of things. There were, you know, just the, the time wasters or whatever, the, the type of stuff that people Lots have dismissed in the past. Digital pinball, that kind that of stuff. That kind of thing. But then there were also games that... Minesweeper. Yeah. Well, that... You're talking about pretty sophisticated game by that point. Actually, well, and Minesweeper yeah. also engages your mental uh, does, abilities because you have to figure out yeah. the logic. Mm-hmm. But there were other games that were specifically geared toward creating an educational experience. Uh, and the one that I have to mention, because I'm sure, well, I, I'm fairly sure both of you have experienced this at some point. Oregon Trail. Did oh, you guys... yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. So Oregon Trail was brand new. When I when I was in elementary school, I mean that was the I remember playing cutting like edge the, of technology. Yeah, I remember playing Oregon Trail, the beta. No, um, <laughs> so anyone who hasn't played Oregon Trail, uh, I'm sure there are versions online that you can play right now. I, I know there, there have to, to be, be lots of ports of it, uh, and of course I know that they've they've uh, updated it multiple times throughout the years too. Yeah, like I played. Oregon Trail 2, which started to incorporate full motion video and oh, junk wow. like oh, that. Oh wow! I'm sorry. Boy, oh, yeah. The, the days of full motion video games. Well, Oregon Trail, obviously, it tells the, the story of maybe not obviously, depending on where you're from, tells the story uh, of the United States during the, the great expansion west when uh, pioneers were uh, forging new territory for anyone who wasn't a Native American uh, to, <laughs> to to try and bravely make their way. settle land that wasn't theirs. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the the uh, there's a dark side to this story that is not explored in Oregon Trail, but oh, the, but, but it, you could get eaten by a bear. Certainly. Yeah. Or you, you know, they 
their depiction, at least the original original Oregon Trail, their depiction of Native Americans was pretty simplistic Mm -hmm. and certainly not uh, uh, very uh, culturally culturally, sensitive. Yeah, not culturally sensitive at all. No, but it also would you know, you had consequences. And sometimes like if you wanted to keep pushing really hard as opposed to letting your your pioneers rest occasionally, then you could see pretty nasty consequences like part of your party ends up dying off in the process. They're they're, they're due to illness or injury or both. Usually dysentery. Dysentery was a big one. Yeah. Dysentery was a big one. I, I put tuberculosis in the notes, but then I don't think that necessarily hit. Dysentery was the one that you'd usually run into. Yeah. I also remember playing an online port version where it was almost guaranteed that you were going to break a bone. Uh, or someone was going to break a bone in the process and, and possibly be need to let you'd have to leave them behind or something. I think there was a lot of snake bite in the game. Yeah, it's yeah. like you yeah. could get snake bite. Yeah. <laughs> so the interesting some of the linguistics were not necessarily. It was yeah. it was certainly there to kind of give you a historical view of the challenges that pioneers faced during this oh, whole process. Certainly, uh, and lots of other games, especially from that time. I, I'm sure. I mean, I'm just out of the out of the children's educational gaming culture at this particular moment. But I mean, but I played. I played the heck out of some Carmen San Diego. Sure. Oh, um, yeah. I geography. totally learned a lot of geography from Carmen San Diego. I f- forgot a lot of geography yeah. immediately after playing Carmen well, San Diego. Well, it's also problematic because depending upon when you played it, geography has changed since then. Yeah. There are countries that are no longer countries. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> since when I played Carmen San Diego. Carmen San Diego is in the USSR. <laughs> <laughs> what is she doing in East Germany? Uh, yeah, so, but there, there were also games that obviously that promoted things like learning math skills, learning spelling, uh, yeah, typing. I remember at kind of school, I played a lot of like number crunchers or something like that. But skipping ahead, I mean, besides those basic skill type games that we've seen, there's some that are, uh, aiming at even more sophisticated type of of uh, topics, you know, yeah. educational topics. One that I wanted to focus on is games that teach coding, like programming languages. Oh, yeah. And there are a bunch that are pretty exciting that are being developed now, but, but this is not a new concept at all. Uh, there was one called Logo that was created in the 1970s at MIT. Uh, it's actually a programming language unto itself, or like a family of languages, I guess, because there's a few different versions. Um but it's it's designed to engage learners with graphical interfaces to to show how rewarding and fun programming can be. Um, if you've ever seen like a little turtle being moved around a screen to draw pictures, that that is logo. Mm. That's pretty cool. The example I wanted to talk about was this thing I found on the internet, which I thought was so cool, and it, it, it's kind of modest. I think it was just sort of a little demonstration. Like they didn't make a huge thing out of it, but it's called Code Spells which was an experiment uh, by the UC San Diego Jacobs School of Engineering. Mm -hmm. And I love the idea of it because the basic concept is it's it's a game for beginning programmers and you play a little wizard who has to do magic spells, but you write the spells in code. In Java, right. Yeah. Yeah. And and you're helping out these little gnomes and, and when you cast a spell, it has little fire effects on the screen and goofy stuff like that. It's really cute. Yeah. And so beyond just this game itself, like the, the very, the concept behind it, the idea of writing magic spells in code is great because that's actually what you do when you write computer code is you're doing magic. You're bending 
physics to your will. You know, you you get to say what happens now. Yeah, you're bending the spoon. Totally. And I, I just thought that, wow, I mean, what a great way to teach people, to encourage people about the power that they can have by writing code. Oh, sure. And also to to give them a skill in a game that translates to a skill in a real world. You know, there are so many ways that you can play a game. Let's say, you know, back in the day when I was in high school, you'd see your friends just playing EverQuest and, and they're sitting there leveling up by hacking snakes to death in the right. forest for a long time. And they're quote leveling up, but they're not actually like learning anything new. They're, they're just in a virtual way becoming more powerful. If you're yeah. talking about a game where, you're like playing as a wizard and you're learning to develop your coding skills to become more powerful. Mm, yeah. Your I'm... power in the game sort of scales to a real world power that you can use to get a career. And you you do have those those small and continual achievements or trophies or, mm-hmm. or you know, just in-game rewards saying like, good job, dude, you did that thing. Right. Yeah. yeah you get, Let's do another thing. Yeah. You, you get that reinforcement right. over and over again. There are other people who have tried to do this in, in more this generation of games. I know there was a whole Kickstarter debacle about the proposed game Code Hero. Yeah, I can actually talk about that a little bit. So this was a game that was supposed to teach uh, here in the United States, kindergarten through 12th grade students, how to code in a lang- in Unity. That was going to be the learning the language, the yeah. language specifically that this would uh, be geared towards. And it had, I think, a uh, hundred thousand uh, dollar goal on Kickstarter. It ended up raising one hundred seventy thousand dollars, so it it was overfunded. Um, and then, as a result, the uh, the the campaign. Uh, the person running the campaign said that, all right, what we're also going to do is include an MMO element to this game. So it's not just going to be a, a standalone single player game. And we're also going to create a documentary about the crowdfunding process. And uh, as is sometimes the case <laughs> uh, with these kind of projects, it perhaps was a little more uh, ambitious than what they had anticipated and that the the goals outstripped the actual funds. I think a lot of people underestimate how much money it takes to develop something like this, particularly if things don't go well and you have to go back and try and and rework it. And I mean, and and plenty of people who have, you know, huge corporations or, you know, personal donations funding their games, not Kickstarter donations, but like actual facts, rich people just going like, here, have all the money. Also, kind of squand. I mean, this is not the first game that's never that's that's become vaporware. Right. There, There are tons of titles out there that were abandoned for one reason or another. Now, not that this game has necessarily been abandoned, but it certainly hasn't it made a lot of progress. for a minute. I don't even it's, know. Uh, are they still working on they, it? They, as of, I think right now, the, their websites are back up. They, yeah. they had gone black or gone to poker sites, I right. think, for, yep. for a moment, but they're back now. And So, uh, uh, yeah, the... the <sighs> right now, they're saying that uh, that a full beta is going to be out in the fall 2014, um, Which but is they, another year after yet another delay. They had right. originally said that it was going to be out by PAX 2012, then September 1st, 2013, and now I think maybe... September-ish. Yeah, 2014. So it keeps slipping. It's it's not to suggest that the people behind Code Hero aren't genuine in their concern to make this oh, game. We're not oh, yeah. trying to shame them. Either. No, it's 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 just one of those well, things where... Yeah, some people are. Maybe we don't know enough about it to shame them. Part of it is, part of it is that you have... <laughs> I don't know them. I don't know part their of is that crowdfunding, particularly the Kickstarter model, uh, in order to encourage people to fund your projects, you are to promise rewards. 
for, yeah. for backing at certain levels. So you've got a lot of people who feel that they did not get the thing that they paid for. Never mind that crowdfunding is all about funding projects you want to see succeed. It's and not it's about a buying something. Gift yeah. that you're receiving for your donation. Right. So, you know, there are, there are projects that don't pan out. And that's one of the things you have to include on your, your campaign is what are the risks a of your campaign. And because say, yeah. there are, and, and it's stories like this that require, that make Kickstarter require you to list what the risks are. Um, so it may be that we eventually see Code Hero come out. I certainly hope we do. But it has not been a smooth process for that that particular project. Uh, another one we could talk about is Minecraft. Yeah, which we uh, mentioned before, but there's, yeah, there's well, tons of stuff you can do in it. Yeah, the, what I wanted to talk about is the fact that, okay, so you could have, say, a a game like Code Spells or something where, where it has a very kind of narrow focus, but it, it allows you to do a lot and it's really cool. It teaches you how to use a programming language. Minecraft, on the other hand, is more like a tool that you could use to create environments to teach all kinds of things. Yeah, not just programming. I mean, not just not just working within a programming language. In fact, that's not even the the case. It's no. actually learning how to program like physical circuits. How to create yeah. hardware, not so, just software. For people who haven't played Minecraft, one of you should probably try to explain sure. basically. All right. So yeah, it's a it's an open world sandbox style game where you have all these different types of environments and uh and things that you can mine in the game different little elements and each element will have different effects depending on what What you do to it sure yeah and and one of those things in there is called redstone and redstone you can uh, mine and you get these little piles of redstone powder and you can use those to create lines that are essentially like uh, a wires in a circuit and then using these redstone torches which are essentially power sources you can put power through that that line that of redstone. Yeah. yeah. And so you can actually build working circuits. They also have switches. They have uh, 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 little uh, relays that can act like diodes and other basic elements, like essentially like transistors. So you can build a working macro circuit out of this stuff. And people people have. I mean, once you could, people did. Yeah. I, I couldn't believe this when I saw it, but I saw a YouTube video of somebody who built a working 16-bit computer inside Minecraft. So in this game, you you build all these things out of these little blocks and someone had put together all the blocks to physically make a computer in a virtual environment. And then you can get super meta with it, right? Uh, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) There is someone who built a computer in Minecraft that you can use to play an approximation of Minecraft. Um, (laughs) So they... they they, Oh, God. (laughs) I'm trying to phrase this. So they... Physically, within the virtual environment, built a computer that will run the program. Not that... not the full program. I mean, okay, okay. It, it, it it's lets, an approximation. It lets you, right. Yeah, it lets you create and destroy blocks and and uh, move this little icon in four different directions, and uh, you can switch between movement and block manipulation with with a switch and. And okay, you're you're limited in your little playing field to just um, 64 tiles uh, on a little eight by eight grid. So so it's not. I mean, this is not high def, but it but it's a platform game. Someone created a game that you can play. I mean, yeah, this now, just. I'll just remind you that this is another example of that philosophical argument of. If we're able to build a realistic simulation of a universe, we cannot, <laughs> in fact, be certain that we are not inhabitants of a realistic 
simulation of a universe. In fact, so that in we, fact, it, it, it almost guarantees that we are. So that which we view as reality is more likely someone's Minecraft creation. Yeah, yeah. So someone playing. That's, that's bottom line takeaway. The version you, of an eight bit. If you learn platformer. nothing else in this podcast. <laughs> You should learn that we're all in a giant game of Minecraft. There is uh, no spoon. People have actually used Minecraft like in classrooms, haven't oh, they? There's, sure. there's actually tons of examples of Minecraft. Like I, I've seen it from everything from, you know, there, there are uh, communities out there that are dedicated to building Minecraft versions of real world places. Oh, yeah. So like the Shakespeare's Globe Theater is a great example. So let's say that you are a student in uh, Atlanta, Georgia who has very little chance of going on a class field trip to London to see the Globe Theater anytime in the in the near future, you might be able to see a virtual representation and get a better idea of what uh, the actual structure looks like and how plays that were played out on this structure, what they would have appeared to have been like for an audience, which is, I think, is a valuable experience as you're trying to teach something like uh, the works of Shakespeare to a class, you know, it helps them to visualize what it was really like to have been an audience member. Because uh, a lot of us forget when we're studying it in a class that this is really a performance art, not something that you just read as as a, a scholarly kind of work of art. So uh, but that's just one example. I've seen examples of teachers using Minecraft to do everything from teaching city planning. Like, how do you how do you lay out a city so that it's efficient? And that everything works properly. Sure, like like SimCity, but with less Godzilla. Yeah, yeah, and and like what what is what are the <laughs> what are the necessary components, or just teaching a class how to collaborate and cooperate with one another, where you throw them into this virtual world and you give them the basic tools they need, or you t- tell them how to make the basic tools they need in order to create a structure so that they can survive overnight, and you turn those monsters on, where you're like, huh. look. Go teamwork. If, if you're, do it. yeah, if your team doesn't, doesn't perform, you're going to get blown up by a creeper or eaten by a zombie. So. Uh, I heard that one teacher was using that kind of team building, uh, in a foreign language class to, to yes. help teach kids how to, I mean, like the rule was you can play Minecraft in class, guys, but you need to speak this foreign language right. while you're doing it. Which, you know, again, that promoted, I've seen that being used at, where English was the language that they had to speak in. They could only speak in English. Uh, but they were allowed to play Minecraft as long as they only spoke in English, which promoted them developing these skills. So in that case, you know, it wasn't so much the game itself that was the the agent of education, but rather it was the, it was the enabler. <laughs> OK, I want to transition to something that I think is an even cooler potential for video games to teach us things, which is helping us get an intuitive grasp for things that we cannot get. An intuitive grasp for so, so an intuitive in, in, grasp, in the real world. Intuitive grasp for counterintuitive concepts. Exactly, yeah. or things that that are maybe on a scale that's impossible for us to realize in our in our personal lives. Sure. So if you want to teach somebody carpentry, you yeah. can give them an intuitive sense of carpentry in in the real world and you know just day to day life. Sure. What if you want to teach somebody about quantum mechanics? Well, I have a question for you. Do they have a cat? Because <laughs> if they have a cat and a box, 
Part and some the, poison. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of reasons quantum mechanics is really difficult for us to understand. There are a lot of different aspects of quantum mechanics that go completely against what we experience on the classic world. Yeah, so matter at the quantum level does not behave like matter on the scale that we're familiar with. It doesn't sure. behave like baseballs and rocks and trees. You can have, I mean, depending on your, those are your, your three examples. (laughs) I live in a world of baseballs (laughs) and rocks and trees. Uh, and I throw baseballs at the trees. Yeah. Unless you've got some really wiggy baseballs. Um, yeah. The stuff happening at the quantum level is, is pretty much guaranteed to be completely different. Right. Okay. So just one example would be like the idea of superposition. Right. Essentially a quantum particle can, uh, inhabit all states, all potential states simultaneously until observed, in which case it then collapses into a single state, which is the one that yeah. you observed. Again, depending on your interpretation, interpretation of quantum but, mechanics. But right. yeah, this is this is one popular way of looking at it, at physical reality. And it's also a really popular way to give yourself a headache. I mean, like like <laughs> trying to think about that is, yeah. is I mean, like I understand the concept, but picturing it is a little bit physically impossible. Right. Because yeah. again, our stuff doesn't do that. Like we don't have macro objects that are inhabiting multiple uh, opposite states simultaneously. But you know what can do that? Virtual objects. And that brings us back to Minecraft. Well, it, Minecraft in one example, yes. but it could go beyond Minecraft. So sure. what what is what did Google's quantum AI lab do with well, this concept? They created a mod for Minecraft, which is not unusual. The PC version of Minecraft has many different mods mm-hmm. that are based on the various builds. So uh, you can go out there and find mods that are that that alter the world's physics dramatically or create new textures or whatever. I mean, pretty much anything you can think of, someone has probably made a mod for it for Minecraft. But in this case, what Google did was they created a quantum mechanics mod called uh, QCraft, which would introduce these quantum uh, effects that we're talking about, including superposition, but also entanglement. Uh, also, that idea of once you observe a, a, an object or you observe something on the quantum level, you affect it, and thus mm-hmm. it ends up uh, uh, making a more concrete's the wrong word, but but settling into <laughs> a specific state. Mm-hmm. So uh, it ends up in letting you kind of encounter this world that to us would be very alien because it is so different from the the world of the the classic physics that we're familiar with on a day to day basis. But you could actually start to encounter these things that perhaps would be almost impossible for you to really imagine if all you had was a textbook. You know, if you're just reading text that's saying. In the quantum world, this thing can inhabit two states simultaneously. But since you can't see that on the classical world, that may be difficult for you to really get on a on an actual comprehension level. Mm-hmm. This is to give you that experience of some of the elements of the quantum world and help you uh, understand them better or to make that less alien to you. However, uh, I should say QCraft does not incorporate all the elements of quantum mechanics. No, certainly not. And it's also... When I observed it, I was I thought it was really, really cool. But it also it's a very basic kind of interpretation. It's more just kind of like to help you say like, okay, here's what this concept is. Right. To uh, in the video that I wrote for this episode, I I imagined that, wow, I wonder how far you could go with something like this. Could you could you create like a uh, 
like a quantum mechanics platformer action game where you're playing as a photon and you're or you're playing as an electron hopping between different energy levels of an atom huh. and uh and you're in a world that's dominated by quantum effects. I don't know if that's possible, but if it is I that I want that game right now. That's... I think that could be so cool and so counterintuitive yeah. and fun and weird. Right. You that, just that hope that's a little bit like portal to me except yeah. just turned up to 11. To, well, yeah. not 11, but like superimposed 11. Yeah. You would have to, you would have to be really lucky that the game studio wouldn't meddle about with that so much that right. they, they end up either dumbing down the quantum uh, effects or, or turning it too much into a gaming element. And I mean, there's a balance you have to make, right? You, you sure. want the game yeah. to be fun because if the game's not fun to play, no one's going to play it and thus no one learns anything anyway. Well, exactly. I mean, I think one of the major appeals of games for learning is that it motivates you to learn. Right. Well, besides the the world of uh, the very, very small, the quantum world, games could also let us get take a look at things that in our, our experience take course over so much time that there's no way for a person to observe it in a lifetime. Right. Like the idea of evolution. You you have this this theory of evolution, which explains how creatures have evolved over time. But. We can't actually see it within the span of a lifetime. At it, least not on a macroorganism scale. No, no. I mean, you, you can, can observe it in bacteria. So. Oh, well, or, you know, you, you can create a whole bunch of generations of fruit flies. But yeah, right. But you're not. But even then, you're seeing pretty small variations Changes. in mutations. Yeah. Right. right. So you can you can see that E. coli have come to metabolize a different kind of sugar or something like right. that. Or that bacteria are, you know, no longer affected by antibiotics. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah, it, the, you could see these sort of uh, uh, kind of genetic um, uh, advan- advantages taking more of a precedence in a population. But actually seeing an, an organism evolve on a way that's easy for you to observe, that takes so much time. We're talking millions, millions, millions of, years, of years Yeah, that it it's not practical. But a video game could perhaps do that. Yeah, there's a game that I've actually never played, but I saw advertised. And maybe y'all, if you have played it, you can comment a little bit. Uh, it, it's a game called Spore. Uh, I have not played it. I haven't played it either, but I do know about this game. The idea being that you could uh, create essentially a, a virtual organism and you could uh, have this virtual organism evolve over time and even evolve by kind of crossbreeding it with other people's virtual organisms so that you are kind of guiding the evolutionary path of this creature. And the original um, the original pitch of this was perhaps grandiose is <laughs> is being unfair, but it was very ambitious. And from most accounts that I have read, the eventual game did not quite live up to those ambitious goals. It, it reminded me a lot of how people were um, excited about the game Fable before right. it came out because it had it was supposed to have this very rich kind of gameplay element that would allow you to guide. To really make your own choices. Right. Uh, Spore was kind of similar to that, except on a a microorganism level where you're you're evolving up into more and more advanced organisms. But. From what I have read, it was uh, somewhat of a failure in that, at least according to a lot of the critics that I follow. Cool. Well, maybe we don't need to talk about that game specifically, but I liked the idea behind it, that that it's a game where evolution is taking place. Because a game, a video game, a virtual environment is sort of the perfect place 
to start to get an intuitive sense of the macro scale vision of what evolution looks like in biological organisms. So I, I was imagining, man, what if you could create like a real time strategy game where instead of like I'm the red team and I'm trying to destroy the blue team's base, I am this particular gene pool and you're trying to evolve your set of organisms within your gene pool to compete with the other organisms for the same resources. I, I think that would be fascinating. I, I think the end level there is becoming a T-Rex. So <laughs> so in your game, are you, the way that you guide evolution, how would you go about that? I don't know. Yeah, maybe it would be... Uh, I guess what would seem obvious is that if uh, if the other players and the environment are your, your natural selection forces, maybe you would have the ability to cause certain mutations. So if mutation is the random element... In biological evolution, mm -hmm. in this game, maybe you'd make that non-random. So you could say, I, I want to try to mutate this gene in this way. Interesting. See, my approach would be the opposite, where I would want the ability to control the environment and try and introduce environmental factors that I think would promote certain mutations from but being... Uh, uh, from either mutations from either being expressed or promote other mutations to be expressed more frequently. Sure. Well, I'm sure you could do it both ways, but... I mean, wouldn't that be, you know, I, I remember when I was younger, I saw people playing oh, what was it, Civilization, yeah, game where you I go was... from, you know, very, very uh, primitive, primitive to very technologically advanced. Sure. To the point where you are developing future technology seven, future technology eight, because <laughs> yeah. oh. they've run out of real ones for you to yeah. talk about. Yeah. Uh, wouldn't it be so cool to actually be you know, owning a, a species, this is my player, I'm trying to push their descendants far and, and make them win the game. But you're going from, say, a microbe to some kind of uh, some kind of fungus or something, you know, not a fungus, but all the way up the, the biota scale yeah. until you, you have macro organisms with legs and trunks and teeth and or whatever it is they happen to have. Maybe, maybe they're just a, huge scorpions. Maybe a virtual computer that can play Minecraft. There you go. That's the ultimate goal of any game <laughs> as far as I'm bio concerned. Computer? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, sure. I, I just thought that'd be so interesting and that would give you a kind of perspective on evolution that you can't normally get. I've gotten this kind of perspective just from watching videos of adaptive landscapes. Have you ever mm -hmm. heard of these? Yeah. Yeah. They're sort of computer simulations that'll help. Uh, you, you can have little objects within them that are representing different organisms within within a gene pool and the computer simulates how they would respond to different environmental pressures huh. and you you just watch them behave over yeah. which ones are going to wipe them out that kind of thing <laughs> you know we talked about using games like minecraft to learn to work together there's some great examples of how uh, the and they're hilarious. They're not necessarily to teach you anything, although they're sometimes built as a social experiment. But how working together can sometimes be impossible. And I'm talking about Twitch plays Pokemon. So the concept here was that you have uh, some people who created a a Pokemon game, and they essentially coded it so that uh, people could put in commands for the game within a chat room in a Twitch TV live stream. So you can watch the game being played live by the audience that's that's there. So you type in your commands, and the commands get translated into in-game commands. And you're you know you're just playing a Pokemon game, so you're you gotta catch them all. From what I understand, <laughs> apparently you gotta get all the Pokemons, and then you put those Pokemons up against other people's Pokemons. Is it not Pokemons? 
I'm being, I'm being uh, purposefully uh, obtuse. Oh, but, um, I thought I was too. Nah. Is it Pokemons? No, it's Pokemon. Okay. It's not Pokemons, but I will continue to say Pokemons. So yeah, you collect your Pokemons. Um, but in this case, you've got, you've got commands coming from a growing audience. Like when it first started, you had a group who could conceivably progress through the game in a kind of ADHD, but fairly normal way. But as the audience grows, you have more and more commands coming in. There's a lag of between 20 and 40 seconds between when you type something in and when it gets translated into the game, meaning that you see something happen on the screen, you're typing in the next thing to happen, but between the time when you saw it and the time you're typing, stuff has already continued to happen within the game. Uh (laughs) There's there's almost no way for you to get it to do exactly what you wanted it to do. It does, however, mean you've affected the game in some other way that you had not perhaps intended. This this reminds me of the board game Robo Rally, if you guys have ever played that. I have not that. played that. Oh, it's, no. it's, it's, it's so frustrating. It's wonderful. You, you have this little robot that you're trying to control and you can give it you, you have to put down a bunch of, of different instructions for it all mm. at the same time and then it plays out those instructions and it's like the worst game of chess that you've ever played. So instead of it be doing all of your instructions in sequence, it goes from player to player and builds it that way? Or? No, it, it, it'll do all of your instructions in sequence, but the other players will have meanwhile been moving around the board, ah, mucking things about. Gotcha. So by the time your instructions play out, anything can happen. I'm sorry, that was a big tangent. No, 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 that's fine. Well, the only other thing it's I have to say... terrible game. Never play it or <laughs> give it to your enemies. The only thing I have to say about... Uh, <laughs> or play uh, it with your enemies. <laughs> Twitch plays Pokemon is that the the community that has grown up around this has created a mythology for this game where there's this one for example there's this one object in the game that has a purpose but once you use it it's that's it it's useless you still have it but you can't do anything else with it some kind of key or something sort of so what happens is that whenever anyone was there was this one case where he kept on the character red kept on opening up his inventory and looking at this one thing over and over and over again because that's just the way that the commands were coming in. And it was happening so frequently that people started to joke that he was actually consulting an oracle <laughs> that was that took the form of this object. And then they essentially deified this object. So now this is like the the overarching god of that game. What is the object? I can't remember. I don't play the Pokemons. <laughs> it's some sort of helix thingy thingamabob. So anyway, um they also have named certain Pokemon uh, after various uh, uh, characters that are theological. Um, <laughs> so, like, they, they've created a whole kind of mythology and religion based upon the activities that happen within this game. And it's very much tongue-in-cheek, but it's also kind of interesting to see. Like I said, it is a social experiment. In this case, we're again, we're learning more about people than the people within it are learning any other, like, valuable skill or or, or any other kind of knowledge. Um there was also a paper that was uh, a Stanford research paper published about the social interaction of massively multiplayer online games. Yeah, this also seemed to find in general that perhaps players were not as connected by the multiplayer element as we might assume. Well, the whole concept behind something like World of Warcraft was that people are playing characters within a world and that, you know, if you're going to the, like the 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 purest of experiences based upon the way it's marketed you are playing a character 
You mm-hmm. you are in, in, inhabiting the role of a character within this virtual world. So you and, are a a virtual a virtual member of this world. Uh, right. And rather than being forced to interact only with uh, computer response characters or or non player characters the way that you would on a single player game, yeah. you have the enrichment experience of being able to interact with. Uh, all kinds of Everyone. sociopaths. Goat huggers all over the world. <laughs> yeah, it's not, not necessarily, they're not all Leroy Jenkins, but, uh, at any rate, the idea was that, uh, you could actually have a role play experience. Anyone who has ever gone on in any of these things knows immediately that role playing is almost always highly discouraged, on, except on specific servers. And if you go to one of those servers, uh, I think the main reaction for most people, not all, but most is, Y'all, this is a goofy game. <laughs> I cannot believe the way people are walking around in character and doing this kind of stuff. Um, it's very, very much true of any sort of role-playing game, though. I mean, if you've ever played any kind of pencil and paper role-playing game, or gone out to a live-action role-playing game, there are very different types of players. There are oh, players. Yeah. There are players who talk about their characters uh, completely in the third person as a way of saying, like, they're playing a game. They're just Going through statistics, essentially, mm-hmm. saying, all right, statistically speaking, my character is more likely to defeat that enemy monster than the enemy monster is to defeat me. Therefore, I'm going to engage in combat. It's this very kind of high level detached approach. Then there are the other games where people are are trying to inhabit their character. They're trying and to are doing a they're incorporating a storytelling element yeah. in addition to the physical gameplay. There's some theatricality there. It may not be physical. It may all be in description. Uh, and or they could be throwing little packets of birdseed at each other right, and if it's a live shouting out magic spells. Sure. So it, there's, there's no, I mean, I've played both types of games and I enjoy both. And both of them have valid places. But it shouldn't come as much of a surprise that the Stanford research paper found that there weren't these really super deep social interactions going on within this game. You had... Uh, uh, people who would group together essentially in order to further the goals of their own characters, possibly to further the goals of whatever guild they were in or whatever group they were in. Uh, or or possibly. Well, I, I'm not speaking to the paper, but um, but certainly I know a lot of people who use that kind of game as almost a chat room. They're like, well, let's go kill a dragon. But also, how are your kids doing? But see, um, those are the social interactions that Stan- the Stanford paper was really interested in seeing. Like, are there these things going on? And while there are, there is some of that, it's not the most prevalent of okay, gameplay. That's fair. So it was one of those deals where talking about, uh, you know, the, the, the world of social gaming, the world of online gaming turns out not to be so social after all. Hmm. Uh, and then, uh, I guess we can talk about using games to actually, you know, do science. Yeah. That's the weirdest part. So we have games improving your cognitive capabilities. We have games teaching you stuff. We have games showing that we're not necessarily learning how to work together. And you can maybe use games to do science. So there was a 2010 paper in Nature that explored whether an online gaming paradigm could be used to help solve technically difficult problems in science. And specifically, what they looked into was predicting protein structures with a game called Fold it. Uh, yeah, because pr- protein folding is is this very complex, very unknown to us branch of genetic expression. Sure. And and the the problems involved there are not easily solved by computers because right. they involve just too many variables to really get through it. It kind of helps to have a human element sitting there and, and puzzling it together. Yeah. The authors of the paper 
they ended up saying that integrating in the, the sort of human problem solving method mm-hmm. with traditional computer based algorithmic problem solving could actually be a big boost in, in certain types of problem solving. Sure. If you can create a game that harnesses human brain power and creativity, we could actually solve some problems that computers alone can't solve. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, and that idea is just so beautiful, you know, rather than just like crushing candy or whatever the kids are doing these days. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> solving science sounds great. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is not a huge surprise to me, mainly because I've also followed in the artificial intelligence world, uh, the 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 progression of not just computers that are good enough to beat chess masters at chess, but this combination, this rising combination of computer human players, where it's a, a human and computer with it's a human playing with computer assistance. And uh, there are several tournaments that use this approach. And part of the reason is because humans are really good at coming up with uh, things that are not necessarily a mathematically logical approach, but are still effective. They, they're very creative approaches to problem solving that computers are not good at. So a, a human player might be really good at fainting on an, uh, you know, fainting as an F-E-I-N-T-I-N-G, uh, <laughs> fainting another player so that they are Fake, drawn faking out. Not, yeah, they're not, drawn out. Not using a couch. Yeah, to... not, not like, oh, my stars. <laughs> uh, no, but drawing out another player so that you can then, uh, uh, act, act upon a vulnerability that right. has been opened up. So same sort uh, of thing. Except, of, you mean kill the player? Well, not in chess. You don't. <laughs> you put them in checkmate. It's not that violent. I mean, you kill all the other pieces, but the king you just put in checkmate. Okay. Uh, what kind of chess do you play? We play it different. I, I don't play Russian roulette chess. I don't know. <laughs> you guys play for way higher stakes than I do. <laughs> but at any rate, it's it's that I'm idea. I'm just trying to extrapolate this to online first-person shooters. <laughs> okay. Well, fair okay. enough. But the, the the point being that you know, using that human element, that ingenuity, that creative approach to a problem, that computer are not very good at simulating um, could really make this sort of thing effective. So it's not just that we're, again, it's not the player necessarily who's learning something new. We are learning something new because of the player's interactions with this game. Yeah. So there are a lot of different, very subtle variations on learning and video games. It's not necessarily player game uh, relationship. Sometimes it's, it's outside of that. It's a more meta approach, but still a really cool one. And uh, I, I hope that we get to see more applications of this sort of thing where you match a person's sort of unpredictable, creative approach to problem solving and a computer's ability to crunch really hard numbers very quickly. Yeah. It'd be a really neat thing to see continue. Absolutely. Before you go into the outro, because I feel like the outro is pending, I just want to say Robo Rally is not a terrible game. I just hate it. <laughs> <laughs> I have never played it. So now I'm. I'm curious and also I kind of want to avoid it. Like it's, it's almost one of those things that I would rather have it occupy a certain place in my brain than to either confirm or deny it. I don't want that quantum state <laughs> to break down into either I love this game or I hate this game. A, a lot of people love it. I'm just very impatient. I can understand that. I, I, you know what? I actually do get very frustrated in game playing as well. So it probably be the kind of game that would drive me bonkers pretty quickly if you're the kind of person who's ever unplugged someone else's controller back when controllers had plugs or ever i don't know flipped a table that had a full game on it i'm not naming names but someone sitting at this table has done that it's me 
It's <laughs> game of Monopoly too. I mean, there are a lot of pieces on that board. I am not proud of it, but I did do it. I have to own up. All right. So anyway, that wraps up this discussion about video games and learning. I think we all learned something today. I think we did. Like you learned a little more about me, for example. That is what I think I learned the most. All right. That's fair. Well, guys, if you have any suggestions for future topics on this future looking podcast, let us know. Drop us a line on Twitter, on Facebook, on Google+. Our handle at all three is FWThinking. We are eager to hear from you, and we look forward to talking to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast.